the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It has become a part of our American modern vernacular. I suspect even the term is used in many parts around the world. Am I right? If you want some information, want to get some data, you know, there was a day and an age back when we were young as Richard, we would go to something called the library, a big building, lots of things in it called books, reference section to get information. Today, what do you do? What do you say? You say, Google it. Absolutely. And, of course, this multi-billion dollar corporation has become a worldwide entity that has provided us not only uh, the tools of research to gain access to almost any website in the world that you like to get information about, uh, but also you can snoop into your neighbor's backyard, you can peep through their front windows with Google Street View and gain all kinds of information. Of course, oddly enough, they're apparently gaining all kinds of information on you, too. By the way, Richard, I noticed your lawn needs to be mowed. I was checking out Google the other day, so, you know, get that taken care of, would you? And, of course, recently we've seen them gathering information that included capturing every bit of data that was traversing across every open wireless network in the country as they went up and down the streets um, taking pictures of the front of your house. And, of course, Google says, all oh, this is all very incident, uh, very incidental and by accident. It was a, quote, engineering mistake. Yeah, terabytes worth of data were just accidentally Collected. Well, with some insights on this, Scott Cleland joins us now, author of a new book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc. And Scott, thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. What of this whole thing? You know, we'll begin, I guess, first with one of the most notable uh, intrusions into our privacy as uh, Google was going up and down, traversing the streets, avenues, uh, drives and boulevards of every major portion of America uh, for their street view, gathering not just photographs, but apparently lots of other information that they claim was all by accident. Really? Well, um, it's not by accident when you have when you're doing it in 33 countries over um, three year period with hundreds of vehicles. So um, you know their excuse was not that it was a mistake and there was only one rogue engineer that had programmed it, and that's just a preposterous explanation. So we know that they patented the technology, and we know that um, you know there were you know hundreds and hundreds of people involved, and 
if you know, in order to believe them, we'd have to believe they have zero management control and zero supervision. Uh, um, so it's it's they're they're damned if they do, damned if they don't in their explanation. You spent a lot of time researching, investigating this company based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, fully eight congressional subcommittees have sought your expert testimony uh, on a variety of topics. Um, tell us from your research. Scott, beyond that sense of just being horrifically intrusive into every open and unsecured uh, wireless network in every neighborhood across the planet, what else about this company makes you nervous? Well, um, the big untold story here, Craig, is that Google is a hidden threat to everybody on the Internet. While everybody knows there are great, great benefits, great innovations of Google, they don't appreciate that Google is really becoming Big Brother Inc. You know, um, they're the, probably the single biggest threat to people's privacy and security online. And the other thing that's important to know um, about Google is is that they're not the trustworthy, ethical, and unbiased uh, company they pretend to be. You know, when when I've studied them, it's obvious that they serially disrespect people, privacy, property, and the rule of law. One of the things, and, and folks maybe that uh, they use Google Chrome, for example, uh, as as their search engine. Uh, I recently had a computer that was having some problems, and a friend said, well, you know, if you're having problems with Internet Explorer, why not check out Google Chrome? And so I did, found that it seemed to function a little bit more smoother. Uh, and then, it, it, much to my surprise, I found out that not only every website that I visited, but every page that I went to was being captured there for all to see. And, you know, I'm not doing anything surreptitious or anything that I have to be embarrassed about, so it's no big deal. But the thought occurred to me, well, if this is being captured on my local machine for anybody to innocently walk up to, look at the history and see everywhere on planet Earth that I've been to, I wonder how much of that data is also being captured by Google and for what purpose? Well, you're you're right. You're talking about the creepy side of Google, and um, they track everything on the internet not only everything you do but everything everybody does over a billion people they're the only company that does this and has a capability to do it so they're the only entity on earth really that knows what you want what you think what you believe what you read what you watch and what you intend to do in the future and they know you better than you know yourself because they do it 24-7, 365, and unlike you, they don't forget. So, in other words, let's say, for example, something fairly harmless and innocent as, um, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, the car's got quite a few miles on it. Now might be a good time to do some shopping. There's talk about vehicle prices going up here, what with what's been going on in Japan and so forth. And so I'm spending time. I'm looking at dealerships. I'm looking at car makers and models. I'm spending time over at, uh, you know, Consumer Reports and other automotive magazines looking for information. Google is capturing all of that information and potentially could what? Turn around and sell it to somebody that might then target me to uh, uh, to try to be, make me become a client of theirs, a customer of theirs? Well, well actually, that's not the threat because Google's a monopoly. They don't want to you know, sell your information to anybody. They want to harvest it for themselves for um, to reinforce their monopoly. So let me kind of lay out the, the risk to your, your listeners and to, and to you. Uh, but first we have to know, you know, um, that... Google pushes the envelope on privacy in, in a lot of scary ways. 
they can track you wherever you go online, and they do it through search, through ad serving, and you may not know that even when you're off Google, any place you go where you go to a website and it takes a little um, second or two for an ad to appear, Google's delivering that, and they have a cookie there, and they know where you've been on that, on that website. And then any time you go to YouTube, Android, you talked about Chrome, um, an operating system, and they have 500 other products and services where many of them also track you. So they track everything you do online. They also can track you where you're going offline in the physical world. They also eavesdrop on you. That's what you talked about at the beginning of the show. They read your email. They photograph your house, like you described at the beginning of the show. And they can even record your face, um, your voice print, and they also want your face print for facial recognition. Let me stop you right there, because I suddenly feel like I'm listening to somebody that's reading out of, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, 1984, you know. Um, let me pause there for a moment, if we can, Scott, and come back to the conversation, because suddenly we've gone from the places that I visit online, that makes sense as I'm doing a search through Google to so many other activities that are offline, so to speak. Oh, Big Brother is looming. Big Brother cares. Big Brother is here to help. We'll come back as we uh, talk about this topic of search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. They're probably monitoring this broadcast as we speak. Back with more. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back with our conversation, Scott Cleland, my guest. Search and destroy why you can't trust Google Inc. And uh, this new book uh, dealing with the topic of uh, Google and its long reach that seems to go well beyond uh, anything we could have even dreamt of when 1984 was written back in 1948. Uh, Scott, you mentioned that beyond simply tracking our online activities, our churches, our our, our searches, our page hits, etc., etc., you said that they're also tracking so much more. Elaborate on that, if you would. Well, Big Brother in 1984 just listened and watched. And, um, you know, the, the advent of search really is, John Tell said, it's a database of intentions. Basically, you can t- tell what somebody wants and seeks and where they, what they're really um, thinking that's important in their life is, is um, revealed through search and through some of the other products. You know where you go on the web, and you know where you spend your time relatively, and and all that. And so um, uh, they they know everything about you. As I as I said that you know they they they're tracking everything you do, so they know you better than yourself. And um, why is that a problem? And well, that's a problem because all of that Uber profile, that incredibly intimate. Uh, personal information. And, and I should step back here and say, as we know, there's not a listener out there, we know there's no one on this on this earth that is without sin, that is without something that they would rather that not be seen. And it can be the most minor thing that you're afraid of, you know, a neighbor finding out about something or a family member knowing about something and you're not worried about anybody else. 
But everybody has a right to privacy, and everybody um, uh, needs privacy for security. So publicly you tell all your friends that you're a big fan of Fox News, and secretly at home you're watching MSNBC on the Internet. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's, and, and there's a ton of legitimate reasons why we want privacy. And so what is um, uh, scary about Google is they just don't believe in privacy. But the thing I want to tell, you, uh, tell your listeners right now is, is that Google has this incredible profile that J. Edgar Hoover or any, the East German Stasi would have dreamed of having during the, uh, during the Cold War, or even any totalitarian, totalitarian government today would dream having that profile on, uh, on citizens because they could then use it to influence them and control them. They, but that information that Google has could fall into the wrong hands in four different ways, and it's happened in all four. The first is it can fall into the hands of a rogue Google employee. And we already have an, an example of a uh, Google engineer stalking teenagers using the, the, the Google database. It could fall into the hands of a hacker. We know last year that the Chinese completely hacked the entire Google system and stole Google's entire password system. We know from last year um, uh, that uh, that they could fall in the hands of, of a spy agency. We know from the Washington Post front page that, um, uh, that Google cooperates with the National Security Agency. We know um, that, uh, because Google has warned us, that law enforcement can get all this information without a subpoena, because our laws have not kept up with the due process where, you know, in order to have your phone tapped, they have to go to a judge and get permission. They don't need that in order to get all the stuff from, from Google. Now, that can fall into the wrong hands, and that creates an increased danger for everybody. Well, and just ask Sony how problematic this can be. Absolutely. Well, just think about it. If this Uber profile, could, it, you know, it creates a danger, increased danger of stalking, blackmail, theft, fraud, kidnapping, intimidation, harassment, or arrest. Now, in a free society, we don't want to have you know, um, you know, citizens have a, a Orwellian Big Brother Inc. profile out there. It's not what a free country is about. You also made the comment, uh, Scott, that Google is wanting or is, or is attempting to or maybe has, has succeeded in some cases of capturing voice print and facial images, all of this, too. So if you're uh, uh, camming or you're doing Skype, I guess, or whatever, uh, they have the capability to capture all of that? Yes. Uh, you have, your voice is uh, like a fingerprint. It is um, unique to you. And uh, they collected um, a bunch of them without anybody's permission. When they offered 411, you know, that free uh, 411 oh, sure. phone service, that reason they were doing that, there were two reasons. They were, uh, I believe they were connecting, collecting voice prints, but they were also collecting phenomes, uh, phonemes. They were trying to get the sounds so that they could improve their translation. So you have to realize that Google's always using users of lab rats, measuring them and testing them, and they, that's, they just view um, people as data and data to collect in order to improve their systems and improve their uh, artificial intelligence. And then they also have face prints, you know, Picasso, they, rearrange, they arrange your photos, but most everybody knows that you can identify people through facial recognition so software. But it doesn't stop there. 
we know Google is investing in fingerprint technology. They would love to get into that as well. And we know they've invested in DNA marking technology, thinking into the future. If you really want to get uh, um, you know, a sense of all the things that Google can collect, I did a one-pager that people could find on the web called uh, Total Information Awareness Power. And if you bang it, you can, you can find it. But there in one page I list all of the things that uh, Google collects. And in my book as well, it lists many of the things that the Google collects. And it's just mind-boggling all the ways they can identify you. Now, uh, is there a URL for that, or should I just Google it to find it? Well, Bing, if you went to, um, uh, um, if you Bing Total Information Awareness Power, that's my one pager. It'll probably come to my blog post, and you'll see there's a PDF there. Not surprisingly, but, uh, you're not recommending that we Google it. You Bing it. <laughs> uh, I wonder why I recommend it. I wonder why. I, when we come back, I want to talk a bit, too, about some of the things that we can do to circumvent uh, being a victim of this level of intrusiveness. You know, it, it's one thing, again, for a company to gather data so that they can more accurately, you know, target their advertising, things of this sort. Okay, I, I get all of that. Uh, you know, demographics are very important in the ad game, as they say. But but the degree to which this can be used, and then you talk about surreptitious level in which, you know, with a government that is trustworthy and wholesome and would never do anything wrong toward its citizenry, this can be uh, uh, something that we would just never worry about. I don't know that a government of that sort has yet been invented. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with Scott Cleland, a look at Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc. Uh, from a practical standpoint, what does, what does Google plan, in your opinion, Scott, to do with all of this information that they are gathering? I mean, you, you've outlined what can happen if it falls into the hands of rogue employees or it's readily hacked that could bring, you know, serious consequences, much as the folks at uh, Sony have been dealing with with the PlayStation hack of, you know, going on through weeks now, but what about from the standpoint of Google themselves? How are they profiting potentially, or do they plan to profit from gathering all this data? Well, we have to explore two different avenues. Um, one is kind of the business, and the other is the, is the political. Uh, from uh, a business, you have to realize they are the only uh, Fortune 1000 company with a, uh, a political mission. You know, it's not their mission isn't to serve um, uh, customers or to help share owners or service share owners. It's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So they say they want to change the world, and so um, and they also are not interested in monetizing things. They just want to solve the world's problems. So I call them techtopians, and uh, um, you know, as a uh, um, you really have to understand what they're all about. And, uh, you know, people wonder why am I so uh, alarmed by Google is, is I think they have lousy values, and I, I completely disagree with their values. The two main values they have is they don't believe in privacy. They believe in radical transparency. Um, they, you know, and what you see with the, with the um, radical transparency is that, that's what the um, what uh, they're trying to do in organizing all the world's information. It includes uh, um, all your private information. Now, the second half of that is is that um, they don't believe in property rights. 
they believe in redistributing everybody else's information property for free without their permission, and they're the ones that monetize it and other people um, don't. And so um, when you put those two values together, and they're political values, where they believe in radical transparency over privacy, and they believe in um, redistributing other people's property without permission over um, a free market and property rights. When you get that, in the end, if you don't have privacy and property online, you are Google's surf. That is a, you know, that's my, my big political beef with, with Google is uh, I, I don't think most Americans and most people around the world um, want to give up all their privacy and give up all their property rights. No, I would dare say not. Now, with all this said, as much as Google has become a, a daily habit for so many people around the world, uh, how do we respond? How do we fight back to all of this? Well, um, this is something where you know my my solution in the book is relatively straightforward and simple. That doesn't mean it'll be easy. Um, basically, if Google was as accountable and as transparent as they expect everybody else to be, and if they just simply respected uh, people, property, and, and the rule of law, I don't think uh, anybody would have major problems with them. Basically, Google is a notorious scofflaw. They're a serial offender of, of privacy, property, and, uh, and, and the rule of law. And uh, as you probably have heard, their don't be evil um, you know, credo. Uh, it's a joke. It's the lowest ethical standard ever devised. It basically allows anything short of evil. And what, um, what, um, when you look at uh, how Google behaves and you compare it to the Judeo-Christian ethic and of, of the golden rule, um, they regularly treat people the way they would never want to be treated. They treat people like, you know, data and like lab rats that are to be tested and tracked and, and, and manipulated. And so, um, you know, a big, big problem with Google and trying to hit back is the fact that they're so unethical. But now getting back to what can be done about it, um, people need to be aware that Google is, uh, um, you know, they've learned all the benefits, and there are tremendous benefits. I am not, uh, you know, against Google or think Google is evil. I think they're unethical and untrustworthy, and that people need to understand that there are great costs that go along with with the benefits. But basically, it's a law enforcement problem. Unfortunately, uh, um, uh, three on three continents, they're being investigated for antitrust. I believe their monopoly power will be reined in. Um, many countries are. are are trying to rein them in on privacy. And I think in the U.S. we're going to pass both do-not-track legislation and comprehensive privacy legislation. And that's probably what the most important thing to your listeners is that do-not-track legislation gets passed relatively quickly. In the meanwhile, we do have alternatives out there. I'm thinking of browsers like Firefox. Well, interesting, careful, Firefox. Uh uh, 90% of the money that Firefox gets came from Google. Yeah, you didn't know that. Basically, the whole um, uh, Mozilla Foundation is funded through. Now, to be fair to Mozilla, Mozilla and Firefox have been much better than Google about uh, um, do not track and about privacy concerns. So Firefox has been a good browser, certainly better than Chrome, but people should remember that uh, Chrome, or that, uh, I'm sorry, that Firefox has long been backed by Google. 
And so um, there is a question mark there. All right, you mentioned Bing earlier. Bing, of course, nothing to do with the Cherry or Crosby, is associated with Microsoft. And a lot of people look at Microsoft as another pretty huge big brother. Well, um, you know, Microsoft has a different model. And, uh, you know, Microsoft and Apple, where Google maligns them and and other people look at them now and and are worried, Um, users have to remember that users and customers actually pay these companies, like Apple and Microsoft. um, They get paid directly by the people they serve. And that is completely different than, um, than Google. Google claims to work for users, but it doesn't. It makes all of its thirty billion monopoly money in, uh, you know, from advertisers. And my one of my largest beefs with um, with Google is not that they advertise. Advertising's um, a perfectly legitimate uh, business. That's how um, your radio station uh, um, makes a living. But problem with Google is they're not forthright, they are not honest, they do fairly represent what they do. They represent that they're only interested in users when they work for, they have a conflict of interest and they work for um, for advertisers. And so um, a lot of what needs to be done with Google is just making sure they forthrightly represent themselves to the public so that people know that, you know, they can't trust them like they thought they could try trust them. Wow. And in terms of the reining in, as you say, that may be done by legislation in the end, how complete, how effective do you think that will be, or do we really have to really protect it and watch it ourselves? Well, I definitely think we need to watch it and protect it ourselves. And, I, and I'm, I'm an optimist in the sense that I think, you know, the democratic system, a free market system with, uh, um, uh, with law enforcement and with a vigilant populace, that most of the Google problem can be addressed. But people should realize it's going to take a long time, and, um, uh, and Google is a serial scofflaw. They are very clever about how they um, they pat people on the head and say, oh, we care about privacy, we care about security, we care about property, move along, there's nothing to see here. And then they go on and do what they were going to do before. And so the law enforcement challenge going forward is going to require extremely vigilant, repeat, repeat, repeat law enforcement from um, from the government on, on, on all fronts. Because, uh, you know, Google as a culture, has a scofflaw culture, they think they're right. They think their values are right. To give the, your listeners an example of their political values in that action is when WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, released all those um, uh, top secret cables and confidential information and, and you know, uh, information on confidential informants for law enforcement and for our intelligence services, they put tremendous lives at risk and the national security at risk tremendously. Now, publications like the Post or New York Times or whatever, they um, uh, were careful about what they released. Some people may quibble they released too much, but they redacted a lot of information and they didn't release actual documents. Now, um, uh, when uh, companies decided they didn't want to be associated, like eBay, Amazon, Yahoo, they decided to put um, a a, a 10-foot pole between them and Julian Assange. They didn't want to be associated with that guy at all. He's a criminal, and uh, a despicable criminal. And uh, but look what Google did. Google um, uh, basically, their senior management got together, according to um, Schmidt, and they decided they were going to make all those cables and index them so they'd be universally accessible to the world, to all the world's bad actors. So that top secret information, that, those confidential informants, that private information on citizens 
is Minal indexable by al-Qaeda, by terrorists, by hackers, by creeps? It is an unbelievably irresponsible thing that Google has done. But that's because their technology, or their philosophy, political philosophy, is for radical transparency over privacy and redistributing whatever property they find to everybody. That's their techtopian ideal. And I think it should very much scare and trouble people. Information on the web, bing it. Total Information Awareness Power, Total Information Awareness Power, the book called Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google Inc., available through Amazon.com or um, also information through Scott's website, Scott Cleland, C-L-E-L-A-N-D, Cleland.com. Scott, thanks for the time and the education. Wow. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. My first guest is an award-winning journalist and radio talk show host who lives on the cutting edge of emerging technology and innovation. When I first learned of her desire to start a talk show specifically designed to address innovations in healthcare, it was of no surprise. What was a huge surprise was to discover that the very disease that my own stepmother would be diagnosed with after months of testing and misdiagnosis turned out to be the very disease that my guest was seeking to educate people about to literally work towards saving life and limb. With me today is Emmy Award-winning journalist, the founder of Way to My Heart and host of The Heart of Innovation, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer, it is a delight and privilege to have joined me today on the program, Kim McNicholas. Kim, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, it's funny. Starting out with a little word, you know, word of wisdom here. Sir Richard Branson said, "Just say yes and figure out how to get it done." That's what I do. Well, <laughs> and you do it so well. And and Kim, we we, we visit today to address a, a, a really critical topic that, as I suggested in my opening remarks, is typically very misunderstood. And, and I have to tell you that when when my stepmother, who had dealt with diabetes diagnosis hypertension kind of a lot of the the usual laundry list of, of, of later in life type of uh, challenges that most seniors face initially looking at the changes in the color of her toes when she wore open toe shoes seemed to suggest well, maybe a visit to the podiatrist, and it turned out to be multiple visits and looking at this and considering that. And, and, and finally, one day, after a great deal of frustration, I went and found a different podiatrist, walked into the office sat down to explain why we were there, why my stepmother was having difficulty standing and walking and had numbness in her feet. Wow. And we he we took off one of her shoes. He looked down at her foot, looked at me and said, 
You don't need to see a podiatrist. You need a expert when it comes to something called peripheral artery disease. Yes. And it turns out that the blueness of her toes and the numbness and the pain and the difficulty walking and all of that had nothing to do with anything related to her feet directly from a podiatrist viewpoint, but in fact turned out to be she had severe constrictions in the veins feeding both legs and ultimately needed to be treated. And we're going to talk a bit about what that treatment is. But with that as an introduction, Kim, maybe spend a few minutes educating our listeners as to how this disease first got on your radar screen. Well, I think it's important to know you did a great job describing the different symptoms. And I think that that's really important because... Most people, in fact, 75% of the patients I work with have reported in a recent poll of more than 400 of them that they were brushed off of the textbook symptoms that you were talking about, the claudication, which is cramping in the lower leg, the toe numbness. Um, Some people will say, oh, you just have diabetic neuropathy, Um, just overall weakness, heaviness in your legs. They'll say, oh, you're just getting old part of old age, they'll even brush you off as having sciatica. But what you really need to do is, as your your mother-in-law did, is take off the shoes, show them the feet, and actually have the doctor feel the feet. Feel for a temperature differential, because one foot will be colder than the other, the one that's most affected. Usually, it'll affect both legs, but one more than another. It got on my radar because it was actually working for you um, with our other tech radio show. I ended up interviewing a doctor on that radio show who told me that the next big breakthrough in innovation was going to be in cardiovascular medicine. And in fact, it was a laser that he was really referring to. So I called up the company that was developing this laser and I said, hey, I want to actually be in every single one of the cases for your FDA study. And I want to travel the world to see how this device makes it to global commercialization. And the first leg of the process of FDA clearance was, of course, with the legs, peripheral artery disease. It's that circulation issue. It's narrowed arteries, mainly the legs. It can occur in the arms as well as the upper peripherals as well, your neck, your head, etc. But it's mainly in the legs. And ultimately, what they were hoping to do is get the device cleared for the legs to revascularize those leg arteries, the ones that are blocked, to go in and you've heard of roto-rooting, right, clearing out some of that plaque. And then their next leg of the journey would be the heart. And I thought, wow, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna follow this device clear to saving not only limbs but also lives the circulation issue in the legs the peripheral artery disease can lead to amputation and what's even more interesting and this is what caught my attention is that three in five people who suffer a heart attack have plaque buildup in their legs they have peripheral artery disease but most don't know it if at all until it reaches advanced stages where amputation, stroke, or heart attack are imminent. And that's where I was like, oh my gosh, 
I need to get the word out about this. One in five people over the age of 60 have it. One in three diabetics over the age of 50 has it. And here's something even more interesting. Is last week I had two 30-year-old men from two different areas, one in Texas and one in North Carolina, presenting with the same symptoms. They had just had COVID two months prior, and they ended up with clots going down their legs. They had a history of cardiovascular disease in their family, but somehow getting the COVID just accelerated the process and they had clot shootings down both legs and both of them had a toe amputated and our organization, The Way to My Heart, ended up finding them each a new doctor that was able to save their legs from amputation using newer tools and techniques. It is remarkable about all this is the degree of which, like in the case of my stepmother, this initially seems to be misdiagnosed. Well, it's just cold feet. You know, you get older. Dad, mom, they were always cold. Just wrap up a little bit better. Or that numbness, you know, that just kind of seems to be uh, a side product of your diabetes. Nothing to worry yeah. about. And when we heard this quite frequently until the one podiatrist, as I mentioned, that suddenly said, oh, no, I know exactly what's going on here, and you've come to see the wrong doctor. How often does that misdiagnosis take place? It happens more often than you know. It's one of the biggest problems that we're finding, which is why so many patients don't present until they've reached advanced stages where amputation is on on the docket for these patients. Um, When these patients get to advanced stages, their arteries have hardened so much that, I mean, you can't even get a drill through them. Um, they might try, you know, taking some wires and balloons and even poking into the artery wall and trying to go around the blockage. Um, they'll try bypass, all kinds of different techniques to, to restore blood flow. But in advanced stages, no matter what, it's going to be a revolving door of treatment. It's not one and done versus If you catch it earlier, and this is the coolest thing, walking is the best medicine. Walking is medicine to prevent peripheral artery disease and to slow the progression. And what's really cool is that the design of our bodies is such that, can I say God? Absolutely. Um, Okay, so God designed our bodies to heal. And so when you get blockages in your main arteries, there is this collateral vessel network that lays dormant until it's needed. There's so little blood flow flowing through there that it doesn't even show up under angiography, under that x-ray, when they pump in that x-ray, that contrast fluid to visualize your arteries, they, they, they can barely even see it unless that collateral network of vessels grows. Your body has the ability to create its own natural bypass. So Mm. when those arteries get blocked or severely narrowed, those collateral network of vessels start to engage. They start to dilate. And the more pressure that's there for more blood to flow and bring oxygen and those critical nutrients down to your calf and into your foot, they'll actually grow to and then reattach below where that blockage is. And walking 
accelerates that process. But it's not just walking, it's how you walk. So, you know when you go to the gym and you're working with a trainer or you're there with a friend and you're really pushing each other and you're like, oh, I think I'm going to give up. I don't think I can do any more. And the trainer says, just give me one more, just one more, one more. And you're like, oh, I can do it. Okay, and your veins are bulging, right? Well, deep down below is your collateral network building. So it's when you have that claudication in your calf and you push through to the point where the pain starts to get to a point where it's going to slow you down or you want to slow down, instead, just take one more step and then rest. When the pain is relieved, then start to walk again. But walk at that brisk pace. And the whole point is to get that cramping to show up sooner in your walk versus later. So you want to walk at a brisk enough pace in order to get that claudication to show up. And over the course of six weeks, you're actually going to see your symptoms improve. And by eight weeks, the doctor should be able to start seeing your collateral network of vessels under angiography. Three months, you should be really feeling better at that point. Now, that is if you catch it in the earlier stages. And that's what's really key. If, if you have a wound on your foot that won't heal, that point you need immediate intervention. What's fascinating about this, too, is not only is you're suggesting, Kim, walking that can help initialize, energize the healing process, but also very helpful in terms of diagnosis. I mean, if maybe you're listening right now and you say, well, Craig, Kim, yeah, you're kind of describing me. I, I, I start my day and the, the mailman comes at a certain time and I start to walk down the driveway toward the mailbox and I get about halfway down and, oh, I start to get this cramping and after a while, I think, you know what? I think I'm just going to turn around and go back inside. I'll, I'll pick up the mail later today. And you return inside of your home. And you sit down for a while. And the cramping begins to ease. And you think, well, maybe it's just no big deal. Maybe, in fact, that level of pain that you're beginning to experience, especially in the calf region, is signaling to you that there is something wrong, potentially undiagnosed or as I suggested in my stepmother's case, misdiagnosed PAD or peripheral artery disease. We're talking about the issue, both symptoms and treatment today with Emmy Award-winning journalist and talk show host Kim McNicholas. Her program, by the way, is called The Heart of Innovation. You can check it out Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. And lots of great information available for you. A wonderful resource, both in terms of how to understand more about PAD, its diagnosis, and its treatment by checking out Kim's website, thewaytomyheart.org. That's thewaytomyheart.org. When we come back, we'll continue talking about not just diagnosis of PAD, but, but what happens when it goes undiagnosed for a significant period of time. And can you be suffering from PAD and be essentially asymptomatic? 
That and more details is our conversation with Emmy Award-winning journalist and radio talk show host, the founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, continues on this edition of Lifeline. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.